Again, a very pleasant and welcoming good afternoon to everyone. It's certainly good for us to be able to come together yet again and to continue this series of studies on the book of Revelation, having been encouraged by this singing in which we've engaged, a perfect opportunity for prayer as we've also collectively engaged. We now have the privilege of coming to a portion of the Word of God. And as you can see, by virtue of the title, we've arrived at the 18th installment in this series of lessons that we began now several weeks ago. In our study of the book of Revelation, we've been encouraged time and again to appreciate the victory that is to be understood by those that are in Christ. Time and again appreciated that though the foes may appear strong, though they may appear mighty, though the cause of Christ may appear to be defeated from time to time, nonetheless God has in store a tremendous and powerful victory, and He's illustrated it in very symbolic and dramatic fashion. And the same will be true in many ways yet again tonight in the lessons that we'll take up in the succeeding weeks as well. Tonight, as we look at this 18th installment, we come to chapter 17 in this book. As you can see from the subtitle, we will focus the lesson on some three major entities in this chapter. The woman, the scarlet-colored beast, and the victory of the lamb. Already we can appreciate the symbolism that will be seen in it, and we have come to see some of them already. But might we briefly remember just a few as we begin the lesson. First, in this continuing study, we should understand that many of those things that we read of are those things that appear very challenging and they captivate our attention. One of those things we mentioned last week is the way I'd like to begin the lesson tonight, by making a bit of a correction, if I might. If you take notes, you may have noted that in Revelation 16:21 as we made reference to the size of those hailstones, someone after the service had made question or inquiry about the thrust and the force of what that weight represented. After a more extensive amount of study, I came to appreciate with a very great amount of certainty those would correspond to 75 pounds in our current English system. So I'd ask you to make note, for that's a little different than what I'd indicated. I think I had written 16 pounds, so please correct that to 75 if you would. Again, very great hailstones to be certain, and the wrath poured out on that occasion leads directly, in fact, into the chapter before us tonight. In chapters 14, 15, and 16, we had looked at a scene that appeared to represent judgment, but yet other aspects appeared to represent the great victory for those standing beside that beautiful glassy sea, singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. This evening, as we enter into chapter 17, might we notice again that three things will stand out. First, the woman will represent and see that she's described as a harlot. Furthermore, she's riding on a scarlet-colored beast. Finally, the victory of the Lamb. Without further ado, let's begin to look at those more carefully. And might I divide the chapter into seven basic considerations. We'll look at these one at a time. But to bring us to that point, let us read the 18 verses of Revelation chapter 17. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. 
And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they beheld the beast that was and is not, and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast." These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire." For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city, which reigneth over the kings of the earth. A reading from Revelation chapter 17 has, as has been the case in many instances in the past, been a very scintillating text Inasmuch as we perhaps attempt to visualize and imagine much of that, our goal shall be to attempt to appreciate the fulfillment or significance of it. Might we again notice seven key aspects or seven key ideas, the first of which begins in verse number one, the angel's invitation to John. Notice with me again in the thrust of verse number one, that we notice that in chapter 16, when we had seen the pouring out of the seven vials, we had seen that as those angels poured out those vials, one of those angels, now in verse 1 of this chapter, begins to speak with John. And not just speak with him, but issues to him a rather amazing invitation. Notice again, the angel says, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. We immediately see that as that verse closes, an amazing statement, an amazing word, if you will, is employed. It says, the judgment of the great whore. We are immediately gaining the impression that whoever or whatever is represented by this symbolic harlot or whore is about to meet the great wrath of the God of heaven. Whatever the behavior is, it has not been pleasing in his sight, and the very cup of God's wrath is about to be poured out upon it. 
we learn a rather valiant lesson from that as well. Namely, that sin is always unacceptable in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. In fact, so much so that He dispatched His Son in such a fashion and way that He paid the price for we could not pay it ourselves. We remember so beautifully the very scene when the Lord cried in John 19 verse 30, It is finished! The marvelous plan of salvation, the very elements for its existence had been put in place. We notice here that God's judgment to be poured out upon this whore. We might also notice that this harlot, for so the rendering is in the American standard, is sitting upon many waters. What do the waters represent? Verse 15 in this chapter informs us. For verse 15 says, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. We immediately gain the impression that the harlot, that whore, is an entity which is supported and encouraged and in fact rests upon the power and prestige and support of many peoples. Notice again the plural character, peoples, nations, multitudes, tongues. This is not a minor influence nor a trivial force. Whatever is represented thereby again rests upon the collective power and mindset of many people all around the world. But let us also perhaps notice one more. The very usage of the word whore or again harlot. You and I understand that in terms of the actual physical occurrence of fornication, if you will, we know physically what that involves. The Bible, however, sometimes uses that word in a spiritual fashion and in a spiritual connotation. As has often been the case, again, the Old Testament is the premier example of it. Do we not remember in the Old Testament on several occasions? As for instance, Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 20, Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 8, Ezekiel the entire 16th chapter, where God rather directly told either Judah or Israel or both, you have played the harlot against me. I have been a true bridegroom to you. I have in fact been the faithful husband, if you will. I gave you my laws, my statutes, and my will. You promised to be faithful to me, but you haven't. You have in fact played spiritually the harlot going after idols, pursuing the interest of other gods and goddesses, though they aren't not other gods and goddesses. Thus, on many occasions, that word is exactly used in that fashion. Here it has the same thrust. This entity represented by the woman, by this harlot, is such that there's a great falseness involved. Not only falseness, it's religious falseness. But let us look further to our second point, or our second idea of the chapter. Can we identify this harlot? By doing a careful detective work and putting together what is stated here, I believe we shall be successful in that endeavor. Let us notice again how this harlot is described. First of all, what are, what are her names in verse 5? You may, in fact, have a Bible in which these are presented in all capital letters. I might be quick to say that the original Greek now does not read them that way. It reads just in the same way in this text as in any other New Testament text. When the Holy Scriptures were originally given in Greek or provided therein, all of it was in capital letters. There was none of it written in what we'd call lowercase letters. 
Our translators have chosen to put the rest by and large in lowercase letters and this in uppercase. Perhaps that's unwarranted, but we notice that the title is Mystery Babylon the Great, the Mother of Harlots and Abominations of the Earth. We do not need to do much detective work to appreciate then that this title is not a favorable one. It's very negative in that it's Mystery Babylon. You might also notice that there may be a comma occurring after the word mystery in your translation. Again, that is not in the original Greek. In fact, perhaps it would be better to read it without it. The name of the harlot is Mystery Babylon the Great. We appreciate the word mystery is employed, Babylon is involved, and notice it's a great thing that's being discussed in terms of its influence or its might. And furthermore, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Having no made note of that series of names or descriptive titles, let us go a bit further and notice that the word Babylon has been used elsewhere. For instance, in Revelation 16, verse 19, as we noticed last week, there it is a great city under discussion and it's called Babylon. We can immediately see then that we are again discussing a city. It is called symbolically by the name of Babylon. And notice later in this chapter, verse number 18, one more time, the woman which thou sawest is that great city. It's a wonderful thing to see how the symbolism is explained on this occasion. We know that though it says a woman, she's not literally a woman, it represents a city. And it represents a very great city in which many have been led in the falseness associated with her. Having made those statements, let us notice a little bit further from verse 2. What does this falseness involve? With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. That particular expression takes on an added emphasis when we recollect that it occurred almost verbatim three chapters ago. If you look back to Revelation 14 verse 8, on that occasion, we had an almost identical statement. If we could thus interpret or recollect what it was that was under discussion then, that may greatly aid us to appreciate the thrust here. On that occasion, we knew very well because it gave us very many clues. It was in description of the Roman Empire with Rome at the seat. May we notice then here, it appears again to be intimately connected with that empire that had origination at Rome. But let us look further. In that text in Revelation 14:8, we notice that there was the description of a beast. That was the sea beast, you might recall. And as we had discussed that beast, we remember the thrust that was associated with it had to do with a portion that became ill or in fact was taken away and great power later was again observed or seen. We pondered how that could be. A kingdom that was strong, but then faded away, but then returned in its power and might. That will be described for us yet again in this chapter, as we shall see in just a moment. At this point, may we put some of these things together. The Roman Empire fell in 476 AD. In terms of a political power, Rome is no more. But what kind of entity began, in fact, with strength and power following that time, has connected ties, and intimately so, to Rome, and continues in its strength and in its majesty throughout the world even until our day? 
some 15 centuries after it first began. Well, you and I know that it is in fact an apostate or false kind of religion, but many other falsenesses have grown from it. As we shall see in our studies on Wednesday evening, as we look more carefully in succeeding weeks to that point as well. It would appear to be that original Catholic dogma, and again, the various series of false religions that have emanated from it. But may we also consider this. For having made those two points, what about a third one? As these tie together very closely, now let's look very carefully at the woman and the scarlet-colored beast. Verse number three. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. That angel that spoke with John carried him in the spirit into the wilderness. And there, notice with me what John saw. He saw a woman. Now, not just any woman. Notice how she's bedecked. I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. As we make note of this beast on which she was riding, this perhaps would be a fair time to look at a particular picture or an artist's drawing of this. This is one artist's representation of the image that we have just seen or described. We notice that there is a harlot sitting upon this scarlet-colored beast. Though it does have four legs as per the common usual, notice it has very many heads, seven in number, ten horns are depicted as well. We notice that she is in fact bedecked in various costly pearls and jewelry and other things like that. As you can see, it is a rather fearsome and ferocious looking thing. But now in returning to our previous points of discussion, let us now put together some other points thereof. In speaking about that beast, again it is said to have had ten horns and seven heads. But not only that, the names of blasphemy are written on them. Again, we have encountered that statement before. In Revelation 13, there was that same statement about a beast. It was the sea beast on that occasion that had seven heads, ten horns, and furthermore, blasphemy was written on each of the heads. Given that we identified previously what that sea beast was, it would seem very caref careful and clear that the same point is under discussion again. Notice that we've identified that to be that empire, again, centered at Rome. But let us consider the following. There are some more statements in this chapter that give us some additional help. Verse 9. The seven heads are seven mountains. We're thus told what the heads represent in this case. Furthermore, we're told that they also represent seven kings. Verse number 10. Now, in terms of those kings, five of them had already come and were fallen. One of them then was, and one was not yet to come. All of that can thus lead us to see the following. In terms of Rome and the circumstances surrounding her, five particular epochs or periods in the Roman history had already passed. However, we notice that one then currently was, but there was another yet to come. 
that takes us back to our description of that beast in chapter 13. The beast was mighty, remember, had one foot on the land, one foot on the sea, and it was such that one of the heads was cut off. But yet later in the chapter, it returned and revived in its strength and was just as strong as it had been at the outset. We came to understand what that represented. Notice the same thing occurs again here. There are enough points in which we seem to have very little uncertainty about many of the elements here. Can we also make note, though, of this? In verse number 11, The beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth. Even though there were seven heads principally under discussion, there was discussion about an eighth one that would be, and that eighth one was that scarlet beast, representative then of whatever that came to appreciate and to represent. As we put all that together, we're about ready for a major conclusion. Can we thus make the following statement as we go to our next screen? We've noticed that the ten horns represent ten kings. The duration of each would be short. In verse 16, we're told carefully that those ten horns ultimately would come to hate the harlot. Whatever that harlot represented, and we concluded that to be false religion, ultimately the kings would come to hate it. Though they originally supported it, and though they originally were very much in close association with it, they ultimately came to oppose it. You and I can easily imagine what that was. Knowing now that this scarlet-colored beast was, of course, the Roman Empire, and that harlot riding on it was false religion, ultimately culminating from the Catholic heresy, we now can easily see when was the case that ultimately the kings came to hate that given entity. It came when so many converted to Protestantism. It came when so many turned their back and realized after the Reformation and Restoration that that was not correct and that it did not match the New Testament. When they turned their back upon it, in appreciation thereof, they came to hate or abhor that line of religious doctrine. As we conclude that particular statement, I'd ask you to note with me then that that scarlet-colored beast we've identified. But isn't it interesting that that woman is described in two different ways? She's called a harlot in verse 1. She's called a woman in verse 4. They are representative of the same. That leads us perhaps to conclude that slide in the review statement that I've made. The apostate religion was riding then upon that scarlet-colored beast. At this point, we might ask, how would you and I have responded if we had been shown a scene like that? John was carried away into the wilderness and he saw this. How did John react? How would you and I have reacted? That leads me to the next point in our slide presentation. John marveled. Would you note again with me in verse 6? It says, I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Again, it may be that our translators have not done for us the greatest of favors. The word admiration is, doesn't quite carry with it the idea that the Greek word has for us to appreciate. Again, John marveled. But it wasn't in such a way he was in high respect to that scarlet-colored beast or the harlot riding it. Our word is admiration. A better word is amazement or wonder. John was beside himself with amazement at what it was that this represented. 
at this point, may you and I conclude something. First of all, inasmuch as John marveled, the angel in the next verse asked him, Why did you marvel? Wherefore didst thou marvel? Had the discussion and the meaning been related simply to what would happen in the literal political Roman Empire, that would have been no shock at all. John had seen countless put to death because of Rome. They had seen countless Christians put to death simply because they were loyal to Jesus. It would have been no marvel at all had this had no deeper meaning than that. However, John marveled. You and I, though, can understand why he marveled when we see what we have just came to conclude. Imagine what John would have come to realize when he came to see the fact that the church that Jesus died to establish, that church that began in purity and uncorruptness, would one day fall into corruptness. It would go aside from the truth that it was originally given, and it would begin to corrupt itself by supporting doctrine not found in God's Word. You can imagine how John would be amazed, how he would in fact be bewildered at how that could happen, but yet it did. In seeing John's bewilderment and his amazement, that leads us to our next point, namely the development of the beast. In verses 8, as well as again later in the chapter in verse 11, we see two phrases that have a great deal of emphasis for you and me to consider. The beast that thou sawest was and is not. Was and is not. It existed at one point, but then apparently ceased to be, at least practically speaking. But then as the verse goes on, it says, And shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. So it existed in strength. Its strength lapsed or was diminished. But then it came back in fervor and strength as if out of a bottomless pit. When we studied the bottomless pit in chapter 9, we noticed that that was representative of that which was devilish and hellish and of satanic origin. That is, the devil was behind it. Can we not appreciate that the same is true here? Whatever is to be described as recurring and reviving, it will come back as being admonished and supported by the devil himself. What was that and when did that occur? as I've listed for us to consider on the slide. We remember that when the Roman Empire politically was defeated, it was not but a little over a century later, when in essence that kingdom spiritually was revived when Catholicism began in all of its strength. And notice in its revival it has continued ever since. That revival, that strength has thus now lasted longer than the original political Roman Empire ever did. That strength by the recurring of the head and all of its power has been going on now all of this time. But might you and I notice that it's not just merely a matter directly related to Catholicism, for it's all false religion that has emanated from it. Notice again in verse number 8, And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Those who marveled and wondered at this were those whose names were not in the Lamb's book of life. And in chapter 20, as well as chapter 22, we shall find that those whose names are there are the saved, the sanctified, those who have obeyed the gospel and live faithfully unto the Lord. So it's those that are unprepared who have been so amazed at the character of this, of this scarlet-colored beast. 
they are the ones who followed it and her. And they are the ones who've been captivated by her and it. To make statements like that lead us to say that that beast thus had a remarkable prophetic development. God revealed it to John centuries before it happened. There is yet another point, though, to be made. This beast, as it appears so strong with its horns, with the various heads that are represented, might we remember that those heads are mountains. And in the scriptures, mountain is frequently employed as symbolic of great power and might. Moses received the commandments on Mount Sinai. Do we not remember later that it was upon Mount Gilboa when Saul was slain? Was it not also at Mount Horeb, where in fact the burning bush burned and where Moses was given that information about that he would lead the God's people out of Egypt? And we see that it was on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17 that Jesus was transfigured before their eyes. Mountains are symbolic of power. And wasn't it true in Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4, it was representative of the mountain of the Lord's house would be established in the top of the mountains. So it was, as we see the word mountain appearing here. Could that then inform us that the representative of this entity is so powerful and mighty that God's forces will not be able to defeat it? In essence, God says, don't fear, John. Verse number 14, These shall make war with the Lamb. And the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. In considering that point, that one is certainly worthy of our focus. We all enjoy being victorious. We enjoy the triumph that comes with succeeding. We should understand that as long as we take the hand of the Savior and tenaciously cling to it, do not let go, but stay with Him. We too shall be victorious for all the forces of evil. We're promised He's King of kings, He's Lord of lords. Though they shall make war with the Lamb, He shall overcome them. We saw in Revelation 5 as well as Revelation 14 that that Lamb was Jesus. He is that blessed Lamb that taketh away the sin of the world, John 1.29. That lamb then here that is victorious reminds us of the victory that is ours by virtue of the gospel. For we are always led in triumph in Christ. We read in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14. And we're told in the Corinthian or rather the Thessalonian epistles that the kingdom of God is victorious. The book of Revelation is a book of victory. These forces that are opposed to the lamb, that are opposed to the things of righteousness, will not win. They will not be victorious. They shall not triumph. But rather we see here that the Lamb is the victor. He is the one that shall triumph. As the culminating factor to this in three chapters in Revelation 20, we will see on that occasion that not only is the Lamb stated to be victorious, we are even given a picture of that victory. He'll ride a beautiful white horse in which he's prancing with the tremendous victory that's his, and on that occasion, his enemies will be cast into a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. But the Lamb and those that follow him are exempt from that second death. They shall enjoy, in fact, the goodness and greatness of an eternity with their Heavenly Father. It's a book of victory. And the victory of the Lamb is showed to us here. And note the language that is used to close that verse. Who is it that's with the Lamb? Called chosen and faithful. 
Let us remember briefly how that in the New Testament those same articles and words are used to describe again those who are with the Savior, those who are the faithful in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, we read on that occasion how that those saints in Corinth were called to be saints in terms of the word chosen. In Romans 8 verses 29 and 30, we read about the fact that you and I are elect or predestined, chosen if you will, to be the very members of the great kingdom of God on earth. In terms of that word faithful, how often we can remember the seriousness associated with faithfulness. In fact, in that judgment scene of Matthew 25, what was it our Savior exclaimed? That to those on His right, as He would speak unto them, the character of the point was this. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I'll make thee ruler over many things. In fact, He said that twice. But faithfulness is a necessary ingredient to those who are here to be with the Savior, those who are victorious. Having looked at that point, that brings us to one last observation. The seventh and final one is found in verse 17. The second to the last verse in the chapter made note of this interesting and very compelling fact. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill His will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. We are reminded yet again that the will of God will inevitably be completed and will inevitably be satisfied and will invariably be fulfilled. We had noted back as far as chapter 11 verse 15 that the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. Here when the proper fulfilling time is completed and everything is prepared and done, we see that God's will will have ultimately been satisfied and completed in its entirety. That we had often seen in the Old Testament yet again how that matters not unlike that had happened. In Isaiah 10, for example, beginning in verse 5, there Assyria was an instrument in the hand of an almighty God to punish his own people. In fact, they captured the northern kingdom of Israel, of, of Israel and took them into captivity. But God said, though they know it not, they are accomplishing my will. Later, the prophet Habakkuk wrestled with that same concept. Here was Babylon, a pagan, heathen, ungodly nation, and yet they were being allowed to defeat God's own people of Judah. Habakkuk had a difficult time understanding how God could let that happen. And God said, they are an instrument in my hand. They will punish my ungodly people, and then at the proper time, I'll punish Babylon. They too shall answer for their ungodliness. We see here again that until the words of God shall be fulfilled. Those things spoken in the book of Revelation lead us to understand that as it takes us forward until that great and final day of judgment, when all those who've opposed the blessed God of heaven shall answer for their rebellion, we can see again that the will of God shall have been done. The forces of apostate religion will have been defeated. All those who have opposed the truth that God has revealed shall not stand. What was that text we saw in Revelation 6 verse 17? And in the great day of His wrath, who shall be able to stand? Not those that have been involved in apostate religion. 
Not those who have not followed the truth of the Christ. Not those who have forsaken the fact that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Only those that will be able to stand are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. Are you faithful tonight? Is it such that in conclusion we could use those words to describe yourself and, and, my, and me as well? For this evening we've learned that there is some strong material in Revelation 17. We have in fact noted that for some this chapter is one of the central chapters in the entirety of the book of Revelation. For it foretold many things of which we've noted the following. John was given an invitation and when he took that invitation, or in fact was the recipient of it, he saw a scarlet-colored beast and a harlot riding on it. We've learned tonight those are representative of the Roman Empire and false religion that came from it. We've noticed, though, that that falseness is just as prevalent still today. And the necessary ingredient then to this development led us to see that we must be amongst those cataloged as faithful, called, and chosen. If that isn't descriptive of my faith and yours tonight, we need to make things correct at once. Jesus, in fact, shed His blood that we could have our sins washed away. You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His, the fact that He is the Messiah, the Son of God. And then be buried baptism in order that His blood will cleanse you from sin. If you've done that but you have not been faithful and called and chosen in terms of the faithfulness to that calling. Come back to that first love tonight. Revelation 17 has encouraged us to see that God's will will be completed. May that will, of course, be the salvation for you and me, but we must be faithful. If you need to put your name in that Lamb's Book of Life tonight or to have it put back in there after it having been erased, We'd be happy to help you in that way. Will you not let that be known if that's the case while together we stand and while we sing?